welcome to the Let It Matter podcast. I'm your host, Kelly Wolf. Here at Let It Matter, we seek to make space for and honor what matters to us as individuals, as communities, and as beloved children of God. The Bible tells us in 1 Peter 5 to cast our cares on God because God cares for us. That tells me that God cares about what we care about. In their song of the same title, the group Johnny Swim offers this invitation. If it matters, let it matter. So that's what we're going to do. I invite you to join me for the next 30 to 45 minutes as we make space for honor, celebrate, or lament, and as we name what matters. Okay, hello and welcome. I am so thankful you are joining me for this episode. Today on the Let It Matter podcast, I am joined by one of my favorite writers and authors and thinkers, um, also fellow uh, podcast host, host of the Protagonistas podcast, Kat Armis. Really quick, before we dive in, if this podcast has been a blessing or a resource in your life, would you consider taking just a moment to pause this episode and do as many of these things as possible? Make sure you're subscribed or following the show wherever you get your podcasts. If you're listening in Apple, leaving a rating and a review matters so much and would be so appreciated. Make sure you're also following the show on Instagram at Let It Matter Podcast and on Twitter at Let It Matter Pod. All of these things are vital to the growth, the guests, and the goodness of this podcast, and your support does mean the world to me. Now, for those of you who may not be familiar yet with Kat's work, let me introduce you to her. Kat Armas, her pronouns are she, her, is a Cuban-American writer and speaker, host of the Protagonistas podcast, where she highlights stories of everyday women of color, including writers, pastors, church leaders, and theologians. And she is the author of Abuelita Faith, What Women on the Margins Teach Us About Wisdom, Persistence, and Strength, which came out in 2021. She has also written for Christianity Today, Sojourners Relevant, Christians for Biblical Equality, Fuller Youth Institute, Fathom Magazine, and Missio Alliance. She has an MDiv and an MAT from Fuller Theological Seminary. She speaks regularly at conferences on race and justice and lives in Nashville, Tennessee with her family. Now, let's get into the show. Kat Armas, thank you so much for joining me today on the Let It Matter podcast. I have been looking forward to this conversation for so long, and I'm so excited you're here. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so happy to be here and looking forward to chatting with you. Oh, man. So when I decided I wanted to do an episode about like spiritual mothering, spiritual mothers and spiritual mothering, I I knew it had to be you. To, to be on here. I have loved the way you have written about women and women in scripture and women in the church. Um, you continue to surprise and captivate me every time you tweet something or write something or post something on Instagram and your books. Um, and so I'm just so thrilled to have you here. At this point in the episode, I will have given your bio, and so people kind of know the book that um, Abuelita Faith that you wrote and um, what it sort of involves. If you could, though, can you, for those who maybe aren't aware or haven't read it, can you just talk a little bit about what you mean by the term Abuelita Faith? From from where does it come and how you came to it and who who is it for, that sort of thing? Yeah, well, thank you so much for that super generous <laughs> introduction. Oh, of um, course. 
<laughs> so yeah, abuelita faith, abuelita theology was something that for me really, you know, obviously developed and began when I was a little girl. I was born and raised um, in a Roman Catholic immigrant community in Miami, Florida. And so my grandmother was the beacon of spirituality and faith in my life. Um, of course, growing up, I didn't, you know, I, I wasn't super aware of that. And it wasn't right. until I left my little Cuban haven of Miami and um, I stepped into a very white evangelical, you know, very, I, I say the subculture of the subculture of white evangelicalism, uh, mm -hmm. you know, environment that uh, I began to really, you know, wrestle with um, my ethnic identity. I began to wrestle with my gender, you know, being a woman, being a Cuban woman. Um, and what that meant when, you know, I was in these spaces where I was being taught by men, I was being, you know, quote unquote, led by men, I was told that I need to be submissive and quiet. And I was raised by a single mom and a single grandma. And so I, yeah. I mean, a lot of these things didn't make sense to me, you know, my grandmother and my mother were my mother and my father, they provided for me the way you know, a father would, and they taught me to be assertive and they taught me to, you know, because that's all they knew. I mean, they both were, uh, my, my grandfather died when my grandmother, you know, when they first got to the States. And so she lived a huge portion of her life as a widow and as a sole provider for her family. And so, yeah, all of a sudden I step into this context where I'm told I need to, you know, behave a certain way and I need to, you know, fit this certain mold that just didn't make sense to me. You know, and that's what, when I began to really wrestle, well, wait a minute, what about, you know, the myriad of people who this is just not their reality, right? Like this sort of way of being is not the reality for the majority of the world. And that's, you know, where I began to really wrestle with this idea. Well, you know, I'm being told that wisdom, uh, and I talk a lot in Abuelita Faith about wisdom, wisdom comes from, you know, um, the academy. And like I said, men in mm -hmm. pulpits and, um, you know, with, with suits and behind, you know, all these things. And yeah. I'm realizing, well, wait a minute, my grandmother, you know, she was uneducated. She's an immigrant. She was poor. And when she arrived at the States, you know, she's fine now, but she was, you know, she worked really hard and um, to get where she's at. And yet, you know, she's the one that um, taught me all I need to know about mm. when, you know, about faith, about God, about my spirituality. And so, yeah, I think that's when I really began to wrestle with, wait a minute, um, this just doesn't, you know, there, there's something missing here. And yeah. Um, yeah, and then I began to really search into scripture and you know, the women in the Bible and began to realize like, this is not just my reality. You know, of course, my experiences are unique, but they're not, I mean, we see them all throughout scripture. I mean, women are just trying mm -hmm. to survive the way that my grandmother was trying to survive. And it was in that, that I realized and I recognized that survival is holy in and of itself. Like survival is a sacred endeavor. And I saw that in Abuela's life. You see that in all the women in scripture. And that's where I, you know, I developed this idea of like, well, what if that is a sort of theology? What if that is a sort of faith that we are to emulate? You know, the faith, a faith of survival, a faith of resistance, a faith of persistence, a faith that, you know, women they must do whatever it takes to survive, lie, cheat, steal, whatever. And yet mm -hmm. they're still called blessed and righteous and holy. And they're still in the genealogy of Jesus, right? And this is so contrary to what we're typically taught, you know, women are to be or supposed to be. Particularly, and, yes. <laughs> right. Um, and particularly marginalized women, particularly, yeah. you know, immigrant women um, who must uphold to an even higher standard of, of virtue because, um, 
yeah, because that's what is, what is expected of marginalized folks. So yeah. um, that's where all of this began to develop. And I just, you know, it, it began with several existential crises. And then um, it was really just the beautiful work of looking backwards to my ancestors and to those, the women who came before me and realizing that I wouldn't yeah. be where I am without their survival, really. I love that survival is holy and survival is sacred. And, and that's, um, man, that's a really powerful, that's going to stick with me. Um, so, so for those of us who may be listening, who sort of uh, fall into the more dominant, let's say American culture of, of the white church or, um, or just American culture, um, what, why is it important, especially for us? to read scripture through the lens of the oppressed or the powerless or the marginalized rather than through the oppressor or as the powerful. Um, what changes for us when we, when we do that? Yeah, well, I mean, everything, you know, and I would, I would even include myself in that, you know, as someone who is Westernized, someone who was raised in the States, someone who does carry varying levels of privilege as well. Um, yeah. I think that, you know, we as Americans, as Westerners, we've been taught to read the Bible as if we are Israel, right? We've been taught to read the Bible as if we are the ones being oppressed all the time, as if we are, yeah. you know, as if we are the ones um, suffering. And and I know that that is such a huge part of the, the Western, you know, evangelical gospel is that we mm -hmm. suffer for Christ. And I think that that's such a huge... Um, thing because a lot of us don't experience true suffering right like i mean yes i'm not saying that we don't experience loss in our lives and of course sure. but i'm talking about just the the notion of being marginalized in our society you know a lot of mm -hmm. us don't experience that kind of suffering and so we have to sort of like invent this you know like we are persecuted for our faith sort of narrative yeah um and so i always like to say that you know if when if we were to read the Bible responsibly, we would see that we are Babylon, right? Like we are Egypt. We are mm -hmm. the oppressing country, <laughs> yeah. you know? Um, and I just use a collective we as in, you know, Westerners in the U.S., like U.S. evangelicalism. Sure. Um, and so I think, you know, just on the sort of the grand, the, the big picture, I think it's important to situate ourselves um, responsibly. And that's to see ourselves as oppressive Babylon and oppressive Egypt and not um, mm -hmm. as Israel. So I think that that is important um, as we read the Bible, you know, as Westerners, as U.S., you know, with varying levels of privilege. And then also just, um, you know, more specifically, I think for me, going from a very specific context, a very uh, Cuban immigrant community, and then sort of finding myself, you know, in white evangelicalism and realizing that white evangelical culture, you know, positions itself as the norm, right, for for everything across the board, right? Like yeah. the way that white evangelicalism is, um, is expressed as if it's just the norm, as if everyone, you know, sees reality this way. And I think that that is why or that is where, as I mentioned, I began wrestling with Awelita faith. It was like, wait a minute, that wasn't my reality. Like that wasn't, and not only mine, but everyone around me, everyone I knew around me, you know, we all have such diverse experiences. And I think it's important um, when we see ourselves as one um, among many, you know, and I think the problem with Western white evangelicalism is that it sees itself as the right true way of being knowing and understanding god and i think you know that's where i sort of wrestle with this notion of wisdom 
you know, like what is wisdom? Who gets to say what is wise and what wisdom is and who is wise? And I think that that's um, when it comes down to it, you know, why evangelicalism has, has told us what wisdom is, has told us who is wise, you know, has told us all of these things as if it's the right, true, the way, the, you And know, who gets whatever. access to it. Um, you know, right, who gets access right, to that yeah. wisdom or learning, um, which is usually right people who look just like them. You know, <laughs> so, exactly, yeah, exactly. exactly. So it's right. like this constant cycle of you know, no, totally. And so I think um, you know it's important for us, and that's why I, I wrestle with well, well, what if you know we looked at other ways of being and knowing in the world, um, and realized that there are a myriad of ways of being and knowing in the world. Um, and when, you know, the dominant culture stops seeing, stops seeing dominant culture, again, you know, contextually, I'm talking about the dominant culture in the U.S. or that who positions itself as the dominant culture um, understands that, you know, there are so many ways of being and knowing and that, it, you know, the white evangelical way of being and knowing is one among many yes. ways of being and knowing. <laughs> yes. So, I, yeah. I, so anyways, in the, the tiniest way, I even experienced that having left evangelicalism and moved into a mainline de- denomination and moved into the Episcopal church. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it there's there's so much I see like in in discourse maybe on Twitter or online or um, in books about American Christianity and what they mean is white evangelicalism because not only mm-hmm. do, do many non-white traditions even in evangelicalism not look like that but mainline traditions right. that are full of white people don't look like that yeah. um, and right, it, right, they, right. the two get sort of conflated as being the same thing when yeah. it's the dom- when it's your dominant mm-hmm. culture the dominant culture you've known your mm-hmm. whole life it feels like those two are the right. same thing you're exactly right. right and there's just yeah not only is there more within american christianity global christianity yeah. my goodness oh yeah yeah it's just and so if you think about it it's just so bizarre that you know this one group of people living in this one specific place and time would assume that they have all the knowledge and all the wisdom and all of the, you know, and it just, yeah, it's just so silly if you think about it, but it's not because it's dangerous, right? I mean, it's caused so much harm. So yeah, it's, it's just so bizarre. (laughs) That's, that's, it's so interesting. And I love the way you, you write about, um, in the book, you talk about women, especially women in marginalized or non quote, non-dominant cultures, um, are often, you say, live-in ministers, unofficial priestesses, and theologians in their families and communities because they're primarily the ones who preserve and pass down the religious traditions, the spiritual practices and beliefs. Um, You also talk about the presence of abuelitas um, and spiritual mothers in the Bible who prove that point, Um, thinking specifically about 2 Timothy. So can you talk about what you see when you read Paul's greeting in the beginning of Second Timothy, uh, or some of the other maybe greetings and salutations in his letters, how that is Abuelita theology on display. Yeah, so that was huge for me when I first sort of discovered this, and I say discovered because I'm sure I've read it plenty of times before it yeah. hit me. And and in Abuelita Faith, in the book, I talk about how. I was never trained to look for these sort of things, right? Like either we brush over, you know, these beginning, like the beginning of letters or the ending, like we, we either rush past them or we're not trained how to read them, you know, because there's certain ways that we're supposed to read them or we're just not trained to like notice and focus when, you know, on women in the Bible, mm-hmm. you know? 
Um, I mean, I think now, you know, there's been a change in many of us, but I think, you know, for so long, it's like these stories of women, I would just sort of skim past them. They weren't the important ones. And I, you know, I always say the Bible is a book written by men for men. And so, of course, the stories of women are going to be little sentences here and there or, you Mm -hmm. know, little things that are easy to pass over. And that's why I think it's important that we dig into these and, you know, ask questions. And that's why, like, in Awadita Faith, I'll I'll bring up women that we've never heard. And then I just I want to ask questions about them. I want to let my theological imaginations, you know, sort of run wild, you know, with what these things could mean or what these stories could mean. Um, again, because the the writers of the Bible, you know, didn't have that in mind, I don't think. So yeah. anyway, all that to say that, um, oh man, I lost my original train, train of thought. Um, About uh, Second Timothy. Oh, for Second Timothy, yes. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, well, I'm getting it. Okay. Um, so Second Timothy, I remember when I read that, um, I had already been thinking about this idea of Abuelita theology and Abuelita faith. And it was when I stumbled upon, you know, Paul or yeah, Paul telling Timothy, you know, it's thanks to your grandmother, Lois and your mother, Eunice, you know, this faith also lives inside you. And I thought, wait a minute, like, this is literally Awalita theology. Like Paul is saying, or who we think is Paul is saying like, (laughs) you know, because of your grandmother and your mother, like, this is who you are. Like, this is why, you know, you are doing the things that you do, why you are who you are. I mean, and this is like Paul's like protege, right? I mean, the evangelical church worships Paul. So, you know, we see that such a, (laughs) so we see that such an important character in scripture, you know, is literally like right there in ink, you know, and I like to say like his, his mother and his grandmother's names, which I love that not a lot of women in scripture are named Mm -hmm. and their names are like canonized in ink. And I, I just absolutely love that. And so that was huge for me. Um, And I began to just ask so many questions about that. You know, what was their faith like? Like what Mm. sort of things did they do? What, um, you know, and I think that there was even a a part there where, um, I don't know if it's in this verse, but Paul even uses the word apostle or disciple, you know? Mm. And so, yeah, I think it's just, um, it's so important to notice like these little passages that we overlook because it can tell us so much. And I feel like this passage tells us so, so much. And it really... Um, changed the course of everything that I think about when it comes to scripture. I was like, I want to find more of these. Like, where can I find um, these, you know, whether it's people or these stories. I mean, like the story of Rispa, you know, I write about her because again, her story is like two sentences. If you look at it, I mean, she's mentioned twice and it's like a sentence here and a sentence there. But then when you read it, I mean, you realize that she changes the course of Israel's history because of her protest. I mean, there was literally a famine and it was because of her protest that God sent rain, you know? And so it's like these little seemingly, mm. you know, small details and they, they carry such yeah. big consequences. And I think that's the same thing with, you know, with that, the, those verses in Timothy. I mean, it's mm-hmm. such a seemingly insignificant, you know, name or, or whatever. And it carries such a, yeah, such a strong or such a powerful um, presence behind it. It really does. And and I it recently was teaching, um, I was developing and teaching a, a course for my parish uh, adult spiritual formation class called Women of Valor. Um, and so we were looking at women throughout scripture and, um, 
And for like women in the New Testament, you know, there's, there's Priscilla, there's, you know, Phoebe, there's, um, but then throughout the letters, Nympha and Aphia and Chloe and, Mm -hmm. uh, and so many, there's quite a few more women, not just in Romans 16, where there's a long list of them, but, um, you know, the, and the church in her house is so often what, per, what mm-hmm. Paul says. And it made me think of when you, you write about women being this sort of unofficial priestesses and, and oh, theologians yeah. in their homes, um, you know, kitchen table theology, mm-hmm. I think, or kitchen theology is what you mm-hmm. refer to it as in mm-hmm. the book. Um, and, and obviously with the church sort of model that it was back then, that would have been a gathering mm-hmm. place. But also I imagine, you know, not just on Sunday, maybe on Monday, maybe on Tuesday, maybe on Thursday, right, people right. are gathered around this home because it's this sort of spiritual hub where they have like-minded people and they gather strength to go on. And um, I just, it just sort of gave me imagination, even thinking about Lois and Eunice, like I think the way Paul, mm-hmm. so, you know, so-called Paul writes about them seems to be the Christian faith, not just necessarily mm-hmm. the Jewish faith. And so mm-hmm. I'm thinking, you know, timeline wise, who was it that told them? How did they hear? Mm-hmm. Did they witness something? Right. Did they go to the, were they at the Sermon on the Mount? Were they, you know what I mean? Like just thinking through, Totally. were they in the crowd somewhere? Did one of them get healed? How do they know? How did mm-hmm. they pass it on to him? Just the, that sort of imagination that I don't, it, scripture doesn't give us the answers and I don't think, you know, extra right. biblical history does, but, um, but it's, it's interesting to think about because it makes you go, and it's not just them. Right. Exactly. There's there's hordes, mm-hmm. there's droves of other women yeah. who were doing this and passing them down just because they aren't recorded in the mm-hmm. record doesn't give us any reason exactly. to think it was exclusive right. to just them. Right. Right. And I think it's that so that's interesting. So important. Right. And I and it's so it's important. And I think it was something also that I um realized in writing Abuelita Faith is that women have been doing this thing from the beginning, you know, just because like, it's like you said, it wasn't written down or just because, you know, whatever, it doesn't mean that it hasn't been happening. And I think that's why, you know, now we're, people are still fighting over like, should women be pastors and blah, blah, blah. And like, I think it's important that we, you know, keep fighting over, you know, keep fighting for justice and all the things Mm -hmm. 100%. But I'm just like, so tired of like trying to convince people that like, you know, I should speak or preacher like I'm just tired of doing that because I'm like well you know what I'm gonna keep doing it whether you say I can or I can't and women have been doing it regardless of who's been saying they can or they can't you know again I think it's important I think there's you know we should always be fighting for justice in that sense but I'm also just like I need to put my time and my energy elsewhere because I'm just going to keep doing the thing, right? (laughs) That's it. And I'm glad that there are people willing to stay in those conversations uh, because I'm a lot like you. Like when I started this podcast, I was like, I'm not going to spend time defending why I'm affirming, why I believe, why I'm egalitarian. (laughs) Like I don't need to, there's books, there's, you know, enough ink has been spilled and people can find those resources. I'm going to let people see that the, you can't argue with fruit. So I'm going to get a bunch right, of women right. preachers on here and then you're going to tell me that they can't preach. You're going to be surprised at the fruit born right. in your own life, in your own heart, in right. your own spirit, much less bearing witness to the fruit in theirs. Um, right. And so it just... And I it, think that... I, I, yeah. We're just going to keep doing what we've been doing. Just like Lois and Eunice, the fruit is Timothy. The fruit exactly. is it's canonized mm-hmm. for millennia. We know their names. 
Exactly. Yeah. And that's what I was going to say. I mean, I love what you said. You can't argue with fruit. And I think that that's like the perfect example of what we see in in second Timothy. I mean, Mm. like you said, Timothy and then, you know, Paul and Tim, I mean, these are all the fruit of Eunice and Lois's, you know, faithfulness, regardless of who told them they're quote unquote allowed to or not, you know, they were just doing what they um, were passionate about, what they felt called to, um, what they loved. And I think that that is, so true of all of our grandmothers, our abuelitas, you know, all of the grandmothers or mothers of the faith. You know, I think of, mm-hmm. it's funny because I think of my grandmother and she would never like call herself a feminist. Like she would never, you know, she's like an old school, like cute yeah, lady, yeah. like, but she was still, you know, living a subversive life in her way. You know what I mean? And, and again, it, because it was birthed out of survival and she wasn't like trying to be subversive, you know, like she mm-hmm. was just yeah. living a life of survival trying to live. And I think that that's right. And I think that that's what's so, I think that's what makes it so subversive. And I think that yeah. that's also, um, you know, what's part of this idea of just like women have been you know, doing the thing behind the scene, they've been um, figuring it out, despite what yeah. the dominant culture has not, quote unquote, allowed them to do, they've still been doing it, you know, I, I in Awadita Faith, I write about so many movements of women who, mm-hmm. you know, have, have brought down dictators, who have, you know, done all of these incredible things, like I said, Rizba, yeah. you know, brought rain, yes. because of her approach, I mean, these are all things that women have been doing, um, called by God, you know, and, and God, again, blessing them, you know, putting them in the genealogy, they're called righteous. I mean, you have the the midwives who lie to Pharaoh, you know, who are lie to the king who, you know, all of these daughters of Zelophehad are some of my favorites, establishing economic justice for women for generations after them. Exactly. Absolutely. And it's all just like, yeah. I mean, it's so subversive, but it's also just like everyday life. Like they're just living. They're trying to survive. You just survive. had to that's survive. Why yes. Mm-hmm. And that's why I say survival is sacred and survival is holy, you know? And I mean, it's survival is again, you know, to use the word canonized again, it's like literally yeah. canonized, you know, there's nothing mm-hmm. super spiritual about what the daughters of Zalofa had to do. There's nothing super spiritual or Jesus-y about, you know what I mean? Like any yeah. of these things, yeah. these are just women just like, Hey, I need to eat. I need to live. I need to, you know, secure the next generation, whatever it is. Um, And so, yeah, so I think that that's something that's so important to understand is that no one needs permission to do do these things. And no one has had permission to do these things. They've just done them. Um, And I think that that right there is what an Awalita faith and Awalita theology is. And that's what I think that, Mm. you know, what can energize us to keep doing the thing, regardless of who on Twitter says, like, like, I don't care what random, you know, guy on Twitter says I can or can't do. Like, I'm still going to do it. Thank you. You I'm just just over here living here and doing it. Um, I, you mentioned um, some of the, you know, that how women, the the Bible is male foo-boo. I love that. Um, That it's, uh, that the women, you know, the women that do get written about, it's often very short or very, you know, quick mentions. Throughout your book, you also write stories, write about the stories of many unnamed women in scripture. Um, And in chapter nine, you write, scripture attests to the power of naming. And it is not coincidental that so many oppressed women in the Bible are nameless. In the same way, many of the abuelitas, mamas, tias, who have guided us 
uh, taught us and inspired us also remain nameless to the wider world, often objectified or rendered invisible. Do you have a story that comes to mind either from the Old Testament or New Testament about an unnamed woman whose story I'd just like to take a minute to just bear witness to, to remember that she was not a character in a story uh, or a line in a piece of text, but a human and a woman who was um, trying to survive and doing her best and and maybe um, existing in a in a patriarchal or oppressive culture and just someone that you can maybe take a few minutes to tell tell their story yeah um oh man that's such a good question so I mean I think one that I mean we've heard her story so I, I think of a few so I think of the nameless um women I talk about it in the beginning of my book but there are I'm trying to think of like how they are described or where they come from. I can't remember right now. I have to like look it up. Um, but the ones that they're like Israel's like Awalita theologians. Um, and then, you know, there, there was, man, I can't really like put my finger on exactly. Um, there's a, they're like after a place anyway, but this is like, you know, people used to go to women. There were women in certain communities that they were like, oh, the wise women. So they were called the wise women of Ahab is one of them. And then the wise women, I can't remember, there was two wise women. And I just love that, you know, there's not much said about them other than like people went to them to inquire like information. You know, people went to them like, you know, and and you'll read in different commentaries that some will say, well, like, yeah, they were like witches, like the witches of Endor or, you know, and so they, yeah. people didn't really trust them, which... I mean, like, that's literally not true. Like, these women were, like, official Awalita theologians. And, mm. you know, people, the king would go to them to inquire information. And, yeah. you know, a lot of times, like, they would, I think in one, in one of the stories I mentioned, they, like, shame, you know, but I think it's, is it David that they, that she, you know, they go to inquire information. And she says, well, the person who, you know, acted like this or did this. And, and it was like exactly, you know, she was like reenacting what was happening mm -hmm. in that situation. And he ended up like, you know, doing the right thing because of what she yeah. said. So I just love those. I think like, it was David um, because I think, right? Because there was the prophet Nathan gets all the buzz Nathan, for doing this thing yes. where he tells the story and it turns out, David, okay. you are the man. Right. And he gets convicted yes, because yes, he gets real go. mad at the story. But then there was a woman right. who came to him that you wrote about whose right. name we don't know right. and who did the same thing uh -huh. that the prophet yes. Nathan did, yes, which is yes. tell a story. He gets all revved up mm -hmm. and then he goes, well, that this has to be fixed. And she goes, Meh, it's you. <laughs> it's you. Yes. It's okay. You. There you go. Thank you. For, yeah. I had totally like I couldn't put the details together yeah. in my mind. But yes, I mean, I love that. And again, it's like this subversive like sort of, you know, like, yeah. I just love that, that there's so many women who just use their wit and their subversive, like sort of, you know, to, to shame um, men or the patriarch or the dominant culture. But then also, you know, of course, one of my favorites, the Canaanite mother, you know, how we don't know her name. She, you know, but she's sort of like people have interpreted what she does as like talk back to Jesus and like say, well, no, wait a minute. Like I am not going to, you know, it's sort of in the same vein of like, I'm not leaving here until you bless me. You know, yes. I'm not like, okay, but even, even the dogs get the straps. So what are you going to do Jesus? You know? And I, yeah. I love that interpretation because, you know, it's this idea that a woman is not taking no from an answer, no, not taking no for an answer. What, whoever it's, it is, regardless yeah. if it's Jesus or whoever, um, you know, and considering her marginalized status, you know, people say that she was triply yes. marginalized. Her daughter was sick and she was, you know, in a place she wasn't supposed to be or, or that wasn't, you know, a region not her own. 
And so I just love, um, yeah, how she kind of engages in this sort of subversive, you know, talking mm-hmm. back to, to authority, talking back to Jesus. Um, I also love the woman who, and this one I actually write about in my upcoming book, and I don't think I wrote about her in Abuelita Faith. I might have just a quick little, you know, paragraph, but I write a whole reflection mm-hmm. on her, the, the bleeding woman. And uh, I love, yes. um, I love her story because she, you know, and, and as I was kind of writing in this, in, in my upcoming devotional, this notion mm-hmm. that like, she takes back her healing, like in so much of the healing narratives in the New Testament, Jesus goes, Jesus touches folks and they're healed. I mean, even Peter and Paul do that. They like touch, you know, or mm. people, you know, it's yeah. like this, this idea that they go and they touch and, but she actually goes to Jesus and she sort of like snatches her healing from Jesus. Oh, and I, it's so I, good. Know, right. It's, it's like so powerful. And yeah. she's one of the only people that does that, right? Like she's yeah. the only person that does that. She has the sort of, you know, audacity, but not even just yeah. audacity. Again, it goes back to this notion of survival. She's like, look, I don't care what I have to do. I need to survive yeah. because no one's listening to me. You know, everyone like the, the system is ignoring me because she's yeah. a woman that's unbelieved maybe, or, you know, kind of how women are experienced that now in the medical you know world, they're not right. believed for what they have. And, um, and she like snatches her healing. Even Jesus, like, he's like, well, wait a minute. What was that? You know? And yeah. I just love that. You know, <sighs> I love that. So I think she's one that deserves, you know, to be talked yeah. about. I sort of wish I would have talked more about her and Awalita Faith, but whatever. She gets a whole reflection. In my she gets a whole one. <laughs> um, really quick. Do you want to plug, what's the name of your upcoming book? Yeah. So it's called Sacred Belonging, a 40 day devotional on the liberating heart of scripture. And I just look at, um, I don't focus just on women. I do focus on just yeah. a bunch of different passages and, um, but I focus on creation of the body, um, wisdom, spirit, and the feminine. And so yeah. I just look at Bible verses that sort of highlight those five different categories and, yeah. And people can pre-order that now, I assume. Yes. I think I already yes. have. Yes. It's available. <laughs> oh, thank um, you so much. <laughs> so, but I want to, I went just on the bleeding woman for one second. I, when I taught about her in my, in my women of valor class, first of all, I just so regret that we know her by her ailment. When what she right, did was yeah. like you said, pursue her healing. I wish we knew her by her healing. I wish we knew her by her name. I wish right. we weren't still millennia later referring to her by her malady. But I also love that Mark, when he talks about her, Mark says, and she came to him and told the whole truth. She said it with her whole chest. Mm -hmm. Like, Mm, like even in an environment where she could have been, um, where she, you know, maybe even should have been me, you know, just sort of embarrassed or shamed or humiliated, scared to tell the truth. She came and fell and t- and told the whole truth. I just love the way mm-hmm. that specific wording is because I oh, think yeah. of it as, especially in context with what you just said, that she snatched her healing back, that she mm-hmm. wasn't taking no for an answer either. In fact, she wasn't even going to ask. She was going to just come right, get it. Right. Um, She's take it. Yeah. And then, and then when Jesus says, what was that? She comes and says it with her whole chest. That was me. That was me, and I believed, and mm-hmm. and I, you know, this is what I believe to be true about you, and um, and we, there's so many, uh, you know, the woman at the well, we don't know her name, we don't know, mm-hmm. um, yeah. so many of the women that Jesus, you know, we do know a lot of their names, but there's quite a few right. that we, you know, even in Luke eight, oh, yeah, it names some know. women that were bankrolling his ministry, right. and then it says and others. 
so, and okay. Yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> and other women. Yeah. And other women. Um, so, but no, um, I, yeah. um, no, and I think that, that it's, it's, it's so good. So thank you for sharing that. I think that that's so good what you were saying. And I think it's also why it's so important. And, you know, one of your first questions, like why should the dominant culture, you know, care or, mm. you know, look at read from the perspective of the non-dominant culture. And I think it's because we have so much to glean from folks who are, again, to go back to this idea of just trying to survive because they have nothing to lose. Folks who are marginalized, who are, you know, literally on their left, like, listen, this, I need this now or, or I'm done, I'm dying. Right. And, you know, these kinds of folks, I mean, there's so much of how to live, how to be, how to engage that we can learn from. And I think we learned that so much from these women, um, you know, these marginalized women in the Bible who like, yeah. <laughs> excuse me, like you said, set out with her whole, you know, the, her whole truth with her whole chest who, you know, snatched her healing who, mm-hmm. you know, there's so much again, wisdom um, that we can get from this notion of survival from, you know, when, and I, I write this in Abuelita Faith, like so many of our grandmothers, you know, they read these stories and, they, these stories are about them. Like they don't have to really work to, to put themselves in the narrative. They don't have to work hard, right. To envision, you know, themselves in the narrative. Like they, they're seeing themselves in these narratives. And I think that that's, what's so important. I think it really shifts. I think this is why it's important that, you know, in a general sense that we don't see ourselves as marginalized or persecuted Israel, but we see ourselves for what we really are. We're, we're Babylon and we're Egypt and so what does it mean that we are the empire and how does, how does that, how do we interact with folks um, who are oppressed or suppressed by the empire? And I think that, mm. um, yeah, looking to the wisdom of our awalitas and our mar- the marginalized women in our midst, I think that we can really get a sense of what it means to survive and we can really get a sense of, yeah, what it means to resist and persist and what it means to um, live these subversive uh, realities where, you know, we can snatch back our healing where we can shame um, the dominant culture, the patriarch, whatever. We can shame yes. the dominant culture for the ways that they are oppressing and suppressing. And I think that that's what these women are doing in their own subversive ways. You know, they are shaming, um, you know, the system. I'm currently working on a paper right now and I write about her as well in my upcoming book, but um, I'm, I'm, I'm taking an um, imperial biblical criticism and I'm focusing on economics and I'm writing about the the widow's might, and it sucks because I'm working on this now. When I had already submitted my manuscript, <laughs> and I'm like, oh, I could have added some more, but it's fine. Yeah. Um. But I'm working on the widow's might, and my argument, or what I'm you know, arguing in this paper, is that by her putting in all she had, it was her way of shaming the system and saying, oh, you're gonna, you know, you're gonna take from me. Well, here you go. I'm gonna show you that I'm gonna do more than what you, you know, like basically throwing a middle finger up to the system by throwing in all she has. Because at the end, she has to take like there was a widow's fund in the temple. So at the end, she's gonna take back her own money from the widow's fund to live, right? So it was really a way. It was more like what I'm arguing is it was a way for her to just like communicate her truth because maybe she knew Jesus was watching. Maybe she knew the disciples mm. were watching, and she wanted to make a statement. And so I, 
you know, just kind of writing about her in this way is so empowering for me because I'm thinking yeah. about all of the other women who, you know, did these sort of things, who put a middle finger up to the system by snatching their healing back from Jesus or by, like you said, you know, saying it was me with her whole chest. I love that phrase that you yeah. used. Um, or yeah, or putting in all she had, knowing she's going to take it right back, but she's just, you know, making a statement. So anyway, yeah. Oh, I love that so much. Um, in these last several minutes, I, I want to talk about the ultimate spiritual mother, the ultimate Abuelita, Holy Spirit, who in the words you quote in the book, Zaida Maldonado Perez, um, is the feminine wild child of the Trinity, untamable, full of possibilities and creative potential, wonderfully elusive, yet always fully present. I about passed away when I read that. <laughs> Um, so for those who may not be familiar with this lens by which, um, you know, to see the Holy Spirit, can you just talk more about how she is written about in scripture, particularly in the Hebrew scriptures in the feminine? Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I love that too. And so many people, you know, bring that up, this idea of like the wild child of the Trinity. Um, I loved when I read about that because it does change so much of how you view the Holy Spirit, you know, the Holy Spirit is unpredictable and she's, you know, she's wild and she's so different every time you encounter her. And I just love that idea that she's just this um, presence that is, um, yeah, just, I, I think the word fun comes to me, even though maybe that's not the right yeah. word, but right now that's the word I'm thinking about. And yeah, yeah just elusive and all of these beautiful things. Um and then, yeah, I mean, in scripture, you, one of my favorite things is how in Proverbs, you know, wisdom, who's personified as a woman, is crying out, you know, in the, in the streets and she's, you know, on the city, it says on the street corners and in, in, the, in the city, you know, whatever, the, in the middle of the city and, and she's crying out. Um, and I love how that's in contrast to the Proverbs 31 woman of how, you know, her husband's mm -hmm. the one that's, you know, out in the city streets. And, um, and I just, yeah, I just love how wisdom and I love how the Holy Spirit is just personified as um, so different than what we're told women are to be, right? I use the word atrevida, like she's daring, she's... Yeah. Um, she does things that you wouldn't expect her to do. She goes out of the outside of the norm and outside of the perceived boxes that um, are sort of scribes for us. And so, yeah, I just love this idea of the Holy Spirit. And in scripture, if you really kind of pay attention to how wisdom is in, you know, personified, yes. you'll find so many um, yeah, different ways of being and understanding. And again, it's all yeah. personified as she, right? Yeah. Um, and so I love that she's just the wild child. You know, I, I was writing something the other day about how every time that, you know, the Holy Spirit appears in the Bible, it's almost like entirely different than the time before that. And, and it, it's mm. something different happens. And I love in Acts 2, even when the, you know, when the Holy Spirit sort of descends on them for the first time, and I, I write about this in Aoita Faith, but how they all speak in their native tongues. Mm -hmm. And I find that, again, so subversive in a culture, in, in an empire that is trying to homogenize everybody, mm. right? Empires trying to, you know, the empire is trying to make everyone 
look the same and act the same and be the same. And there are differences, but those, you know, you're, if you are different, it's because you are subversive to someone else. Right. And so your differences um, are, are a way to, you know, trap you even further, you know, into the system, but man, the Holy spirit, the wild child of the Trinity, she just comes in and just has every, a celebration of language and it's native and it's, yeah, I think that's just so beautiful mm. and there's fire and there's wind and it's just like this, you know, spectacle, you know, yeah. and I, yes. I couldn't think of a, of a better way to describe the feminine of the Holy Spirit yeah. than that. And I think it's also important um, because, and in my upcoming book, I write a lot about eco-feminism and, and eco-womanism and how women in nature have been like they've been personified exactly the same way as carnal, lust, lustful, earthly, um, irrational, unpredictable, you know, mm. earth, earth, the, you know, the earth, um, nature yeah. and women are kind of seen in the same as that, in that way. And because of that, both the earth and women, um, are dominated and, and ruled over in the same mm. way because of these characteristics that we are, unpredictable, irrational, or, you know, lust, all these carnal things. Yeah. But I mean, if you read scripture, I mean, that is the Holy Spirit, right? She just sort of mm. shows up and is irrational and unpredictable and yes. carnal and earthly. And I say that because, you know, fire and wind, these are all natural elements. These are all. And so I, I love how, you know, how, when we think about the ways that creation and women have been dominated, and then we think about the subversive ways that the Holy Spirit is like speaking against that. I think it's, mm -hmm. yeah, just so powerful. I think one of the best examples of that, and I, I um, mentioned this, uh, the very first episode of this podcast, for those who don't know, um, I did, uh, I just sort of did a teaching from that Women of Valor series, but it was about God, uh, God in the feminine, and then, you know, the original human, humans. Um, so, um, I, I say in that and I, and I'll say it here also. So, um, Dr. Wilda Gaffney, who, um, mm -hmm. is the just best. one of the best. <laughs> yeah. Um, she points out so that a better translation of Genesis one, one through two is when beginning he, God created the heavens and the earth, the earth was shapeless and formless and bleakness covered the face of the deep while the spirit of God, she fluttered over the mm -hmm. face of the waters. And so I love that the spirit of God at, in the feminine there is the like generative force of creation mm -hmm. there. You know what I mean? Yes. That, that the is, is sort of there and witnessing and part of, and, and goes, you know, just hand in hand with, like you say, wisdom is personified yeah. in the, in the Proverbs as there at the beginning of creation and, um, and mm -hmm. in the feminine as well. And so, um, I love that that is it's so good. Yeah. A sort of response to what you were just saying about ecofeminism mm -hmm. and the domination of earth and creation and, and women. Right, right. Um, that if you, if we can yeah. see correctly through those lenses, see the Holy Spirit as the mm -hmm. ultimate sort of spiritual mother. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah. That, so good. Yeah. That's a good course correction, I think, to that. Gosh, 
I could have talked to her for another two hours about some of the other abuelitas from scripture and since then um, that she writes about in her book. I cannot more highly recommend getting and reading and sitting with the incredible offering of a book that Kat has given us in Abuelita Faith. I know you will not regret it. I know you will be enriched by it. I cannot wait for Sacred Belonging to come out and would love, of course, to have um, Kat back on to discuss that at some point. Um, my thanks again to Kat for joining me today. You can find her on Twitter and Instagram at Kat underscore Armas. That's A-R-M-A-S. Or on her website at katarmas.com. I will link to these in the show notes as well. Um, and make sure you go and pre-order Sacred Belonging, which is also linked in the show notes. Join me next week as we continue to make space for, honor, and name what matters. And now, according to our little tradition as we close out, I offer you this benediction. It comes once again from Shannon K. Evans' book, Feminist Prayers for My Daughter, a prayer called For the Ones Who Came Before. As I've mentioned before, when I read these prayers, and the ones in Shannon's book use very specific language of, quote, my daughter or her. Where that wording appears in this prayer, I have adapted some of the language to apply to us all more broadly. Let's pray. O ancient of days, every woman who came before us, every woman who, known or unknown, changed the course of our lives, each one who deposited something into our souls, they are all still living and whole in you. I lift a heart of gratitude to them, to you, to a wisdom that could be so brilliant as to imagine woman in the first place. Thank you for the women who came before, the ones who silently guide us, the ones who pray for us, the ones who protect us, and the ones on whose shoulders we stand. Thank you that we are not alone. Amen. <laughs>